talks too much in class. It seems like every time report cards came out in elementary school, it was that behavioral assessment along with a lot of others that always got checked off by my teachers. Every trimester it was a problem. I was known for talking in the middle of class. And even worse, at home I wasn't only known for talking, but I was known for talking back. I would get in trouble all the time. You can ask my dad if you wanted to. I'm sure he would enjoy and be tickled of telling stories about me. Uh, I would get in trouble for talking back all the, t- all the time. And the heart that talks back to authorities, the heart of disobedience, that is a problem. I would, I would have that heart of disobedience. I would talk back with that heart. I would talk back with the snide comments. I would talk back with the attitude to back it all up. And it was clearly sinful. Just stop and think about the heart behind the mouth. Maybe that's your own mouth. Just stop and think about the heart behind the mouth that talks back to God-given authorities, assuming that they are acting in your good, right? Not all of them act for good, but assume that they are acting for your good. My 12-year-old little heart questioned, objected, and judged my parents and their wills, their ways, their judgments, their intentions, their wisdom, their knowledge, their experience, their authority over me to finally be in those moments unsatisfactory. Our passage today focuses on the heart that talks back, not to parents, but to God. Actually, our passage puts a stop to running mouths set on talking back to God. And if you're taking notes, we have two points. Point number one is asking wrongly, asking wrongly. There in point number one, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the heart that talks back to God, and they are asking God, accusing God with the wrong attitude. And then point number two, point number two, we look at asking rightly, asking rightly. So it's pretty simple, asking wrongly, asking rightly. And just to let you know, today's sermon is a little bit different. You know, as we walk through the book of Romans, normally we're going to walk straightforwardly, you know, through the passage, preach what is in the text. We're going to do that in point number one. Point number one just comes right out of the text. But point number two, uh, you know, because a lot of the issues that come up in our section today, because they've already been addressed in a lot of Romans chapter nine, we're going to ask some sort of topical questions in point number two. They are going to come from the text. So basically today's sermon is more like a topical exposition of Romans chapter 9, or at least that section that we're in today. So it's a little bit different. So please join with me in turning to Romans chapter 9. We are in verses 19 to 29. Romans chapter 9, verses 19 to 29. We are almost done with one of the most challenging passages in Scripture. Once again, that is Romans 9, and it is challenging. It's challenging to hear because it deals with the topic of election. That is, if you want a definition, that is God's choosing before time to save some sinners to salvation, thereby passing over others. I'll repeat that definition here. That is, God's choosing before time to save some sinners to salvation, thereby passing over others. And this topic, without a shadow of doubt, generates a lot of 
questions. And I hope it generates questions even in your own mind as you seek to understand who this God is and his ways and his will. What is interesting is that some of our own questions we actually see asked in our passage. So what Paul does, you know, Paul the Apostle here, he's writing to the Roman Christians in the middle of the 60s A.D., and he's teaching them, right? He's wanting to teach them. And the way that he does this, at least in large portions of it, is that he, he knows, right, what people are going to say to what he wants to communicate. So he asks the question. First he states the truth, and then he asks the question that we ourselves have about the topic that he just brought up. And then he goes on and he answers it. You know, you can imagine that Paul the Apostle, he's the missionary to the first century world all around the Mediterranean. He, he surely had many conversations with people about God and the gospel. And of course here, election. If you're joining us for the first time, it will definitely help if I explain where we are in Romans chapter 9. So here, I'm just going to launch into you know, a handful of minutes, just an explanation of why Paul even brings up this topic of election. And then we're going to dive into these two points here. In the beginning of the letter, Paul says that the time has come, that the doors of salvation have been flung open wide, and God's salvation is to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, to the Jew first, and then to the non-Jew, right? And naturally, just think of this, right? Jesus only dies once. He gets up from the grave once, and right? And, and that's a unique thing in salvation history. Christ ascends and is seated at the right hand of Father, and, and Christ charges his church. He says, go out to the ends of the earth now. And spread the gospel, spread the good news that salvation is had in my name, in Jesus' name. And so naturally, they're right there, there they are in, in Jerusalem, in Judea. Then they go out to Samaria. You see this in the book of Acts. And then they're going out to the very furthest ends of the earth. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He wants to bring the gospel. As it says in Romans chapter 15, he writes to them because he's trying to bring the gospel to where it had never been preached before. That is Spain. So there's a wonderful promise, right? God's salvation is to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. But here's the problem. And we see this even today. Not all Jews believe. In that time, not all the Jews believed. So then naturally, if we're hearing this, oh, this is a wonderful promise of salvation. Salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But what do we make of the fact that not all the Jews believe? Has God's word somehow failed? Should we believe in him at all? This is a question that we all should be asking, right? Should we believe in him at all if his promises have failed? Well, Paul answers that question. He brings it up. You look there at 9.6. 9.6. He says he, he, he knows that this is going to be an issue. So he says there, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, even though all the Jews do not believe. And the answer is, why is it? Why has God's word not failed? Why is God worthy to be believed on to the ends of the earth? Well, it's because out of his physical people, Israel, he, not all of them believe, right? Out of those physical national people, he always had a certain people, a true spiritual Israel, Paul says in the book of Galatians. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all physical Israel are God's true spiritual people. He just makes it really clear. And he goes back, you know, if you were to follow on from six on, you know, we're not going to read it, but he says, look, just look at Abraham's children. Abraham had two children, uh, two boys at least. We're looking at here the two boys that he had at least. You had Ishmael and he had Isaac. Well, it wasn't Ishmael that was saved, but it was Isaac that received the promise. Isaac was saved. And then not only that, though, but you look at Isaac's children. You have Jacob and Esau. It wasn't Esau that was saved. It was Jacob that was saved. It was Jacob through whom the promises of God went. It's clear not all of Abraham's descendants are Israel, as in God's true spiritual people. It is only God's remnant. God has always had a 
chosen people. But this is where another objection comes up. If some are saved and others are condemned, it seems like God is unfair, doesn't it? It seems like there is injustice on God's part, and that would mean that God is not worth believing in, that he is unrighteous. So the question there is, is God unjust? Look there at 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And you see there Paul's response. He says, by no means, of course not. God is always just. And if you want to look more in depth about what we spoke about in that section of Scripture, all of the sermons are online. You can find them there. But in short, Paul says, look, God is the king. He does what he pleases. Secondly, he says, look, who can blame a king for withholding judgment on those who deserve it? Who can blame God for that? Who's going to fault God for mercy, right? That's the very definition of mercy, him withholding judgment, something that we deserve. He withholds it from us. So all of a sudden, realizing that this is, you know, we don't want immediate justice. Actually, we want mercy. We think, praise God, he saves any at all. So if you want to talk about fairness, if you want to talk about justice of God, well, rebels deserve judgment. Praise God then for his salvation. And then on the flip side, if God chooses to judge, right, of course, we're not going to fault him for justice. The conclusion, anyways, look there in verse 18. It says there, God has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. But here's another reaction and objection, and in fact, a visceral, a visceral reaction to this idea that God hardens those he wants to and he has mercy on those he wants to. And then this brings us to point number one, asking wrongly, talking back to God. And actually, for this section, I'm just going to go ahead and um, read 19. And then let's just go ahead and read 19 to 29, our whole entire section. Look there, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, as Isaiah predicted. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Point number one, asking wrongly, talking back to God. You see there the question in verse 19, this is this visceral reaction. They hear about this idea of God's election. He, he has mercy on whom he wills. He hardens whom he wills. And the people, res- and, and he, Paul, of course, knows how the people are going to respond. He asks the question, right? He knows what's on their hearts. It's, oh, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And we know this is a question that's asked out of a heart of pride. 
right, talking back. We see that in Paul's response there. He says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This word answer back can be translated talk back. Who are you to answer back, to talk back to God? This here that asks this type of question in this particular way is a heart that's actually ready to enter into dispute with God. This is a heart that presumes that it can judge God and even depose God himself. It's a heart of pride that assumes that you know better. In fact, that you are qualitatively better than God. It assumes that you know what righteousness is and what righteous ways are. It assumes that you know better its definitions and where to locate this righteousness. This is a heart that is willing eager to enter into dispute with God. And this question here, right, the way that we are supposed to read it, it's supposed to imply that God is ridiculous. If God hardens some, this is ridiculous. Why does he still find fault with them? Sinners can't do anything about it anyways. Who can resist his will then? He and his ways are ridiculous, absurd. In the Chinese culture, there's this, there's this word, chasing, it's, it's like ridiculous, stupid, absurd. To be honest, I've asked similar questions out of a proud heart. I wonder if you have too, if you can identify with this type of questioning here and really the heart that is behind it. And you know when I've asked these kinds of questions, it's when the God of the Bible doesn't match the God I prefer him to be. I ask these kinds of questions when the God of the Bible does not match up to the God that I prefer him to be. And then so I subpoena God to appear in my courtroom where I am the judge, I am the jury, and I am the bailiff. And after I cross-examine God, I judge him to be insane, absurd. And then I escort him out of my courtroom. I'm guessing some of you sin in similar ways as I have in the past. Now, let me be clear here. Okay, this, this question asking. He, Paul is not attacking question asking in general of God. He's not attacking that. Okay? So if you think here that Paul is just saying, shut up and sit down and don't say anything, you would be incorrect to understand that to be what's coming out of Scripture here. It is not wrong to ask, you know, simple questions to God asking him why he has chosen to do certain things. So if you were to just comb through the Psalms, for example, you see a number of psalmists asking God the why question. Uh, and so they ask the why question when they are lamenting. They ask God why. When they go through temporary judgment, they ask God why. When they want to seek his face in the midst of suffering, there they are asking God why. And when they desperately desire for God to show himself or to speedily act, they ask why. And in those passages, right, they're not condemned for asking God questions. That's not a bad thing. In fact, we know that the Psalms is like the Christian Psalm book. We are to ask the very same questions there. We're to pour out our hearts to God in similar ways that we see the psalmist do, doing. So it is biblical to ask God why, but here's the deal here, with the right heart a heart of humility that desperately seeks God's face, right? To know God, 
to grow in our relationship with him according to his word. Right? So, so that's not the issue that Paul's getting at. The issue that Paul's getting at here is the proud Goliath-like heart that sa- saunters up to God and holds God accountable. I got my first subpoena ever. Don't worry, no one's personally suing me for something that I have done. It's this other lawsuit that I was involved in, and I had to, I was supposed to appear as a witness, right? And, I, and someone knocked on my door. It's like classic, just as, just as I have seen on television. Someone knocks on my door. I wonder who it is. I open the door, and this dude hands me a piece of paper and says, you need to appear to this place at this particular time to have a deposition. You will be deposed, and if you don't show up, you will face these fines, jail time, whatever it was. I don't remember. You just have somebody telling me what I am to do. Friends, that's that Goliath-like heart that calls God to account. And just look at the way Paul responds here. He responds with a very strong rebuke there. If you look there in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? I think we actually find this rebuke a little shocking to our Western ears don't we? I mean, here we are as Americans manifesting our own destiny, fighting for whatever rights, whatever liberties, whatever happiness you feel like you are entitled to and whatever, however it is that you want to define those things. There we all are fighting for those things. And so to hear such a rebuke is shocking to our desire for self-rule, autonomy, where we ourselves are God's. And even if we aren't so bold as to say that we are gods, even if we do have a big G, like a capital G God in our mind, right? These days, as I was talking to uh, one of you guys, these days, big G God is just slightly bigger, an occasionally better version of ourselves. But here, along with the rest of Romans and the Bible, we are told that we are not God. Who are you, O man? Do you hear that rebuke there? Who are you, O man, made of dust, dependent upon the only independent being there could ever be to answer back to God, the only independent one, the only sovereign ruler, the one who has created rights over everything? And what Paul is presenting right here to us is this creator-creation distinction. Creator-creation distinction distinction and the corresponding reverence that man should have towards his creator it's a recovery what paul's doing here it's a recovery of the very thing that sinful man had discarded as explained in romans chapter one and two right sinful man had judged god already to be unworthy of all honor and glory and thanks he was not worthy to be acknowledged there was no recognition given to him and so sinful man traded in the glory of god for lesser things We worship and serve the creation, ourselves even, rather than the creator. That's what it says earlier in the book of Romans. But here Paul gives us a dose of needed medicine. What we threw away, God here Paul is trying to retrieve. He wants to push us back underneath God Almighty. He wants to recover the reverence for God Almighty, the God of creation. God, immortal and eternal. God, worthy of all honor and thanks. God the one to whom all must give account. And the hope here is that we understand ourselves to be underneath the sovereign creator. We are under the God of sovereign rights. And this theme continues in our verses. If you look there, right, what will the molded 
say to the molder? What will the clay say to the potter? And with this idea of God over us, it is truly then absurd for sinful man to proudly question, judge, and dismiss his creator. Of course, this is not a Western tendency. This is the sinner's tendency. God says in Isaiah 29, verse 16, that it is a sinner who has things upside down when the potter is regarded as the clay, quote, when the thing made says to the maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. You hear what's in there in that passage? Sinful man there insists that God did not do what he did and that he is not who he says he is. It's the very rejection of God. It's the very heart of sin. Self-rule, it is autonomy where we have rejected God. Again, this reminds us of Romans chapter 1. This is ultimate suppression of God and his truth. Trading in the glory of God in order for man to rule himself. As a way of application, uh, church, you know, we try, we strive to recover this creator-creation distinction. And we try and maintain it even in our services here, right? So if you look here, just go ahead and grab your bulletin. We do this every so often. It's good for us to be reminded for why we do. But even in here, we have the maintenance, hopefully, the preservation of the creator-creation distinction. We start with a call to worship. It is God speaking to us, calling his people, his creation, to give him the glory that he deserves, right? God speaks just like he did in Genesis. And so here God speaks and we gather together to worship him. And then, of course, why do we sing? Some people, they think, yeah, let's sing so that we can keep the energy levels high so that we can worship, right? So we can sing and be excited. Well, you know, something should be said of not wanting to lull you guys to bed. Uh, But no, we ultimately sing because we are ascribing God the glory that he deserves. Glorious and mighty. We start right after the call to worship. Yes, God is these very things. And we are going to give him the glory that he alone deserves. He is, after all, our God. Song number two. And then we were guided into the scripture reading very well by Adrian. And we read Job chapter 38. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the book of Job, but Job is is a guy who goes through suffering all by God's plan. And it's almost like God is teaching us through Job, that God is worth glorying in no matter what, no matter what suffering may come. And then in the book, you know, there's just, there's just chapter after chapter of, you know, Job's friends trying to counsel him in this deep suffering and him sort of responding. And he is guilty of something. He's actually guilty in the last chapter. You know what? It's speaking of things that he d- didn't understand. Speaking of things that are too lofty, he just assumed that God is a certain way. That's what he's guilty of. Anyways, the reason why we read that is just rhetorical question after rhetorical question. You can just go ahead and read that. Actually, it just goes on for chapters that God is most high, that he is so different than we are. And so, right, that should therefore put us in our right place, as I hope it did. And therefore, you know, we have a prayer of confession, right? How many times do we sort of saunter up to God demanding that he answer to us, which is why we confessed our sin. And then... Uh, we had a reading of a, of a pardon. Their God Almighty pardons sinners. It's not that we earn forgiveness for ourselves, but God pardons us. He gives it to us from his divine courtroom. Praise the Lord, right? Creator, creation. And then, of course, we continue to sing songs of praise for Jesus. 
He's the one that saves us. We need to be saved by our Creator. The one through whom all things were made. The one for whom all things were made. He's the one who comes and saves us and redeems us. We know ourselves to be sinful people who can't save ourselves. And then here we are, right? Here we are hearing the Word of God preached. And even in that, there is something really useful where the people are quiet and we stop and shut our own mouths to hear the very words of God from Romans chapter 9. That's useful. There's a submission here, even here, that's going on right now as we are quiet, as we quiet ourselves to hear the very words of God. Divine revelation come to our ears and as we pray that we would be changed by them. So all this we aim for in our service and actually the way in which we lay it out. You know, these things aren't random. We do this on purpose. This is one way in which we try and preserve, one way we maintain the creator-creation distinction here as we ascribe God all of the glory. And then even in the personal realm, I hope you guys too are trying to preserve this and convey it as well as you speak with other people about Jesus Christ, your Savior. One way I do this is not only talking about God, right, to my non-Christian friends, Uh, but speaking to them about God as creator. I go one step further. I want to speak to them not only about God, but God as creator. Because in this day and age, you know, who knows what people are thinking when they say God. They can think of like Aladdin, that God is, you know, like this thing that uh, does our will. But that's not the case. That's why I talk to them about God as creator. So imagine this. And I had this very conversation recently in the last couple weeks. The question was, hey, you know, what'd you do this weekend? Unanswered, you know, we chilled out, thinking just, you know, chronologically, we chilled out, you know, there's Saturday, hung out with friends. And then yesterday, as in Sunday, I went to church to worship my creator. And just adding that little thing all of a sudden gets interesting reactions. People start, they stop, and they wonder, oh, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, again, I was talking to a friend, and I was telling them I'm a pastor of a Christian church here in Hacienda Heights, and that I put God first. And he goes, yeah, you know what? I do too. Me too. So I invite him to church. I say, hey, man, you should come to church with us. Um, and then he responded, yeah, I've been trying to go, but man, it is so early. And I tried to encourage him and inform him. So I said, got to get to church to worship your creator on his day, on the Lord's day. And he looked at me like it was completely new. Of course, we didn't continue the conversation in that very moment. It was at jujitsu class, but... Uh, um, where he had to go and teach the class, and I was just a spectator watching my kids. Um, but he, he looked at me as if he had heard that for the very first time. All of a sudden, worship is not only something that you do for oneself, actually it's something that you do for God because we are dependent upon him for all of life. So it's useful. It's instructive, and it's true. So I encourage you guys, as you talk with your non-Christian friends, as you try and maintain, preserve, take back, convey this creation creator distinction that you actually speak about god as creator and see what kind of conversations you get into now if you're visiting with us as a non-christian i'm not trying to be obnoxious by talking about god as creator that's not me trying to be obnoxious i'm trying to just faithfully worship god and live that out in front of you as all christians are to worship god and live that out in front of other people Right? We are not to tell others that it, we are to tell others, actually. We are to tell others that it is not good to ignore the one who gave us life. It is not good to ignore the one on whom all life, your life, depends. And we are to tell them it is better, both temporally and eternally, to live at peace with the King. 
This is one reason that we as Christians have a ministry, according to the Bible, a ministry of reconciliation. We are charged to go out to the ends of the earth, alerting others to the fact that God himself has made peace possible. And this is made possible, of course, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very thing Paul was eager to preach to the ends of the earth, the very thing that we ought to be eager to tell our friends and family. This is made possible through Jesus Christ. Peace with God is possible because punishment has been removed for those who repent of their sins and turn towards him. So you might have the question, okay, well, why is there punishment? Because Romans says, and all the Bible says, that there is none righteous, no, not one. All have turned away from their creator king. We have rebelled against him. We have striven, strove to live according to our own law and not God's law. And so that is the de-godding of God, as one describes. We have tried to, in our own hostility towards God, because we are at enmity with him, topple his throne. What is astounding about our maker and creator is that he just doesn't leave us, right? He doesn't judge us immediately. That's why we're all here today. He doesn't judge us immediately, but instead he comes up with a solution. And so our God, creator and maker, our most high God, enters into fallen creation. And there you see God's love and his grace and his mercy as God's eternal son, Jesus Christ, takes on the stuff of man in order to reconcile and save sinful man by bearing our punishment as our substitute. So you see here that the God Most High has also stooped down so low in love, mercy, and grace. So if you don't have a conception of God who stoops so low, then you're misunderstanding the Bible. Right? God is not only Most High, transcendent, he is also God with us. He is God imminent. And we see this so clearly in Jesus as Jesus walked here with us. He dwelt among sinners. And so where we should have faced the wrath of God, God sent Christ to bear it for all of his people. On the cross, he bore the punishment that his people deserve. He makes, on the cross, he makes, he affects peace for those who turn to him. And so we stand here today alerting and calling all, alerting and calling you to turn from your sin and be restored to your maker, to be reconciled with him, forgiven, justified, that is, have right standing before him, and adopted into his family, all because of what Christ has done on the cross as he bore the wrath that we ourselves deserved. Recovering the fact that God is creator over us banishes pride and self-righteousness that dares to call God to account for his ways and will. Friends, living in that reality that God is creator over us, helps us humbly and trustingly submit to our loving king and even to ask of him with the right heart posture. This brings us to point number two, asking God rightly, asking God rightly. So with all this talk about asking God wrongly with a wrong heart attitude, so we go back to, well, what does it mean to ask God rightly? What does it mean to ask God, you know, who he is and why he does what he does about his election and other issues that flow from scripture? Well, friends, in previous weeks, again, you can find these sermons online. In previous weeks, we've said, we've mentioned that uh, we are to ask seeking to know and submit to the Lord, trusting in his character, his sovereignty, his goodness, even where we might not fully understand why he does all that he does. And so for the remainder of the time here, we're going to focus on three questions that many have from Romans chapter 9 and God's election. And as we do so, I pray that we ask with humble hearts, teachable to our maker as he has revealed himself according to his word. Okay, so in these three questions, 
And in our answer, answers, right, we always want to make sure that God's word, once again, forms the guardrails that helps keep us in this safety zone here. What has God revealed to us in his word? And then we ask, well, how do we then as his people learn to live in light of those things? That's what we want to do, right? That's, that's how we do so humbly. We submit to his word, his divine revelation, his wisdom for us, right? The word of God is to light our path. It shows us the way to go. God reveals the plan of salvation. He reveals himself through his word. So we want the word to sit over us. Here's issue number one. One thing we notice from the passage is that though God is sovereign, he still nevertheless finds fault. All of us should be thinking like, that's interesting. So here's question number one. Does God's sovereignty nullify human responsibility? Does God's sovereignty nullify or sort of throw away human responsibility? The simple answer, according to the word, is no, it does not. Going back to the Bible, we know that the Bible represents the fact that God is sovereign and also the corresponding fact that humans are responsible. What does the Bible have to say? Well, we see both of these truths in the Bible, right? In Romans chapter 9, we see so clearly that God is sovereign in election. You look there at verse 11, Romans 9, 11. You know, why does God choose one and not the other? Look there at verse 11. Though they... Speaking of Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older older will serve the younger. Right. So there you see that God's election his choice before time of some sinners to be saved, thereby passing over others. Right. That God's election is dependent upon his sovereignty. We don't need to go further into that. I think it's pretty clear there. We've spoken about it in previous weeks. But what about human responsibility and salvation, right? Do we really make choices? Do we really make choices? And to that, the Bible says, yes, we really do make choices. Absolutely. We make a choice to believe. Our choices are real choices that involve our hearts, our minds, and our wills, both when it comes to following Jesus and when it comes to persisting in sin. Both or our real choices. So turning to Jesus involves the heart. Listen to this. Romans 10, 13 says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So you see there the heart representing conviction, right? Is the heart that believes. And then you, hear, you have there the will also involved in the mouth that confesses there. So clearly, you know, one makes a real choice there. And then in turning from sin and to God... You know, we can look at different different portions of Scripture. But, for example, Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to the early folks there in that church that was being established, to the non-Christians. It says there that the folks were cut to the heart. They were convicted in mind, will, and heart. And so they said, you know, what can we do to be saved, right? That's the heart. What about the mind? Well, Romans 4 talks about Abraham. Romans 4, verse 20, this is what it says about Abraham. It says, no unbelief made him waver considering the promises of God. So he hears the promises. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he was promised. It's not that he robotically believed. It's that he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So yes, we make genuine choices according to the Bible. This is why Jesus calls all to consciously, right? He calls all to turn from your sins and believe on him. This is why he tells the church to go to the ends of the earth, calling with people, pleading with people, reasoning from scripture with other people, offering the hope that we have in Jesus Christ so that people would genuinely make a choice to believe on Christ and repent of their sins. 
Now, when it comes to sin, too, this is a choice that involves the heart, the mind, the will. Romans chapter 9 speaks about God hardening Pharaoh. In the book of Exodus, Pharaoh himself hardens his heart. We know, too, that when people turn from their sin or remain in their sin, they make a choice. Pharaoh made a choice. Judas made a choice and was condemned. Furthermore, we know that all men are responsible for their sin because God holds us responsible for our sin. This is what it says in Romans chapters 1 through 3, right? All have turned away, right? That's on us. All men in Adam have sinned and rebelled. We have chosen to sin. That's on us. Man is to blame. God is never to blame for sin. So what are we to conclude from the Bible? Well, we conclude that God's sovereignty and human responsibility exist at the same time. They are not contradictory, right? To be contradictory, it would say God is sovereign and have another claim that says God is not sovereign. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God is sovereign, but humans are responsible as well. So they are complementary truths. There are compatible truths there. And of course, we see this in the cross of Christ. This is like the prime example. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Definitely worth thinking about here. Acts chapter 4. Here, we're going to this passage because we see God's sovereignty and human responsibility working together. Acts chapter 4. Uh, here, the apostles, uh, some of them were um, arrested. And then in verse 23, if you look there, they were released. They go back to their friends and they pray. And look at what they pray. They start off praying there in verse 24. Sovereign Lord. That's not qualified. It's just sovereign God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. That's creator rights, right? He goes on to say how David predicted that the nations would rage against Christ. Look there in 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Look at verse 28, the sovereignty of God, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's sovereignty in salvation, in giving us Jesus. Interesting. It's redemptive history. But you look there, you see all that. You got Herod, you got Pontius Pilate, you got Gentiles, you got the peoples of Israel. Well, who exactly should own the sin? Is God held accountable for evil and sin? No. You see there in in chapter 2, turn over to chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. You see there that in this section, who is it that should own their sins? Look, this in, look there in verse 36, chapter 2, verse 36. Peter says that all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So on one hand, it's the sovereign Lord's plan that predestined these things to take place, but the people are held responsible. You crucified the Lord and Savior, which is why they are cut to the heart. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, who owns the sin? It is them who own the sin. Repent and be baptized and you will be saved. So they are guilty of crucifying Jesus Christ. They really did it. They own it. God will hold them accountable for it. But yet God had predestined it to take place. Now, how exactly does everything work out to the nth degree? The Bible doesn't lay that out. But if there is a tension here, 
It's my responsibility, our responsibility as Christians, to just hold out that tension to other people that we talk to, to those who might actually have that question. Remember, asking the question is not so bad. It is, may not be bad at all. It might actually be really good. But if you're speaking definitively about what the Bible does not speak definitively on, then we need to tread carefully. That, might not, that still might not be wrong, but we need to at least tread carefully. There's a tension here, and we should hold out this tension. God's sovereignty, human responsibility are compatible. If you want uh, stuff to read on this issue, definitely talk to me, and I can point you in a different way, whether it be on God's sovereignty and prayer, like why do we pray? Even those who don't believe that God is sovereign, for whatever reason, they go to God and say, God, save my friend. Right? We all pray as if God is sovereign, no matter what position we might hold on God's sovereignty. So how does that work? Right? We, we all should be curious about that. Uh, and it's good to be curious about that. We can expand the issues, right? Not only to prayer, but also evangelize. If God has elected some for salvation and passes over, why do we evangelize? It's a really good question. And I hope that you guys are seeking the Bible for answers and other good biblical resources to read. Again, ask me questions about where you can find such things, and I'd be happy to point uh, you in those directions. That's question number one. Uh, question number two is about another one about election. If God could have elected all sinners unto salvation, why didn't he? Another way to ask the question is, if God could have saved all people, why doesn't he? It's a really good question. Again, learning to ask of God, well, what do we do? Trying to be humble, well, we go to the word of God. It's a hard question. Again, we need to tread carefully when we are trying to hop into the mind of God right, to understand what he does. Like, I sometimes barely know why I do what I do, and so I re- misrepresent myself, so I need to be careful as I represent myself. And then not only that, though, but I need to be careful as I represent other people. Like, if I'm, am I going to hop into my wife's mind to definitively say why she does what she says? No, even there, I need to tread carefully. Well, of course, we need to do the same exact thing with an infinite and almighty God. Though we acknowledge that this question is a good question, we want to ask or watch our hearts as we ask, right? So we go to Romans chapter 9. And actually, Romans chapter 9, friends, offers a ton of clarity. A ton of clarity. You look there in, Rome, uh, in Romans. Turn back there. Romans chapter 9. So the question is, why doesn't God save all? If God elects, why doesn't he just elect all into salvation? If God saves, why didn't he just save all? Well, let's look at why God does what he did, why God did what he did to Pharaoh. You look there in verse 17 of chapter 9. Why does God skip over Pharaoh? It says there, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Simple answer here. It says that God did this to vindicate his justice, his righteousness, his glory, his name. All those things are associated with one another. Verse 17, that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. At the very least, at the very least, or to put it another way, most fundamentally, we know that that's why God skips over some and leaves them for judgment. Somehow, it's about God's glory. Okay, now, side comment here. With our minds and ears, right, with our sinful minds and ears, we think like, oh, that kind of sounds really weird. That sounds almost sinful. God is doing something all for his name as if he's some sort of selfish being. Well, keep keep in mind, friends, that when we ask that kind of question or when we hear those things, we hear those things with sinful hearts, right? 
we are sinners. And we, never, we are supposed to never do anything for our glory boastfully in terms of sinful boasting for our name. But God, because he is all righteous, always good, does everything perfectly, does everything with love, everything towards other people for his good, it means that everything he does, he does for good. So just imagine every single thing that we do, we do for good. Now, keep it, imagine this, right? Imagine if somebody blasphemes your name among your neighbors unjustly, right? I'm sure some, at some point in time, somebody has done that to you. And, you. and something in you wants to vindicate your name. Sometimes, friends, that's not always bad. Sometimes that can be a really good thing. Maybe, maybe 80% of us in that moment have just motives, right, to vindicate our name. Maybe some of us too, right, we might fear man, et cetera, et cetera. But maybe somewhere in there, there's something good. If that's you, if you've ever been in that situation, friends, then you know a little bit, a little tiny bit of what it looks like for God to want to vindicate his name among the nations, that he alone is worthy of glorying in. Friends, that's what's going on here. It's about his glory and is always good. Keep in mind, friend, that God's name and character have been blasphemed among the nations, so God was in the business of rectifying this. Here's a practical illustration here for how God's name is vindicated in judgment and salvation. Practical example, right, of how God's name is vindicated, his righteousness is vindicated in judging some and saving others, right? That's what we're working through here. Imagine if we were all here convicted criminals waiting in line to face the judge and go to judgment. Let's just assume that that's what we are. Bible says that we are. I recognize that not everyone here might believe that. Some of you guys might be visiting and exploring Christianity. But let's just assume that that's what we are. All convicted criminals heading towards judgment for our rebellion against the one king. Right? And we wait. We wait in line. We recognize that all those who have gone before us and who have already been judged have actually been judged. Very clear. We learn something about the king, don't we, in this whole process. Now, you might not like the king, but we learn something about the king. What do we learn about this king? We learn that the king takes rebellion, however he defines it, very seriously, worthy of death even. We learn that God really does uphold his law, even if you think he's unjust. You learn that he does uphold his law and no rebellion slips past him. We know that those who are judged are actually judged for their works. As, not, as, all, as all have turned away from God, none are righteous. No, not even one, Romans says. We learn, too, that this God is really powerful because even the most powerful rebel, maybe your very own mentor, he has already judged. Not even the strongest, supposedly wisest, can escape his rule. We know that he demands perfect righteousness as well. We know that he is the standard of righteousness and that we have broken it. We know all that as we stand in line. But what if? What if the king all of a sudden starts pardoning some? We see that there's some sort of commotion up there as we wait in line to face the job. And some are fleeing, bounding, not fleeing, but boundly rejoicing, leaving, exiting the dungeon's gates because the king has pardoned some. How might that make you feel? I know how that would make me feel. As we see others leave past us, run past us, every single one of those people, as they go out shouting that the king is pardoning some through a substitute, as as they run away saying, as they bound out of prison, 
being at one with God, being brought back into his kingdom, being at one with the king, every single one of them is an example to me of my own living hope. Free mercy, the possibility of grace. In it all, God's name is vindicated both in the judgment of some as he exercises righteousness and the saving of others as he carries out his mercy and grace. God there in that situation is known for judging Pharaoh here in Romans chapter 9. And all those who remain in their sins see Pharaoh as an example. The world sees God is as righteous, as just. And the fact, and the fact is, he does not take sin lightly. On the flip side, with everybody else who is bounding out of prison, God is known to save those who are repentant, who are convicted genuinely of their sin. And in saving sinners, the world comes to know that God still lavishes, there in verse 22, the riches of his glory in showing mercy to some. Why does he save all? Well, both in judging, in judgment and mercy, he vindicates his name. And it shows again that God is a God of mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but who is also just and does not leave the guilty unpunished. This leads us to our last and final question. Why has God's mercy found me? Why has God's mercy found me? The simple answer is, it's all because of God's sovereign grace. It's not because God, the king or the judge, sizes up all of his rebels, and he saves only the smartest, the strongest, the most beautiful. You look there in 916, and we see there that his salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who, hold, who has mercy. Salvation depends on God's free grace. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift toward the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a sacrifice atonement by his blood to be received by faith. Given that we all stand condemned before God, the wonder of wonders, once again, as I've mentioned before, is that God chooses to save any at all. Friends, if you are a Christian, you are numbered among the saved, even though you were God's enemy, even though you were hostile towards God. He still had grace and mercy. Friends, God is on the move to vindicate his name and to spread his glory to the ends of the earth, both in judgment, but also in salvation. He is, as the rest of our passage says, he is forming for himself a people, whether they come from a Jewish background or a Latino background, Chinese, Filipino, African, American. He is forming for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's Paul's point there in verses 24 to 29. He is forming for himself a people who arise and bound, who leap out of the dungeon into a living hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are to go to the ends of the earth, telling all, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Christian, the fact that God has, God's grace has found you is supposed to cultivate humility, rejoicing, and encouragement in the love of God. God's salvation is to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. In Paul's day, God was on the move fulfilling his promises to the Roman Christians and to us. You see that there? You see where Paul lands there in... Where did it go? In verse 24. Just look there in 23, actually. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy for which he has prepared beforehand for glory. You see where he lands there? Even us. 
He knows that he stood one time facing the judgment of God. But he knows that sovereign grace and mercy has found him. And even in all of this election stuff, he doesn't land on what is not known. He doesn't stop and say, well, let me take one moment to write a whole 300-page book on the intricacy of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He just knows, look, God is sovereign, and he has saved us, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He knows that he is worthy of judgment, but yet he lands on God's grace, sovereign grace of God alone. Those whom were not my people, that is the Old Testament Gentiles, they call them Gentiles. He says, God will call them my people. Those who are not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And what I find so fascinating here is that in Paul's mind, he really focuses on the stuff that has been revealed, that despite his sin, God has saved him. If you look there, he is part of the Jewish remnant that God, out of his sovereign grace, preserve you look there in 27 and isaiah cries out concerning israel though the number of the sons of israel be the sand of the sea only a remnant of them will be saved that's him for the lord will carry out his sentence upon earth fully and without delay as isaiah predicted if the lord of hosts had not left us left us offspring we would have been like sodom and like gomorrah the cities that god destroyed for their sin he knows exactly what he deserved is God's judgment. He also knows what he had received according to God's sovereign grace. He receives salvation. He receives mercy. He receives grace in Jesus Christ. Christians, I hope that you are encouraged. I hope that you are encouraged not only to look back at the time of your salvation, but then to go back and also plead the very mercies of God. Right, The very fact that we know what we deserve makes us, right, it should make us actually plead the mercies of God all the more because that's the only thing that will save us. The only thing that has ever saved us and the only thing that will preserve us is God's sovereign grace and mercy and salvation given us in Jesus Christ. Without Christ, we would have been judged. These are the truths that should form the guardrails of this life. That should lead us to humility and rejoicing and encouragement all in the love of God given that we know his sovereign grace. We see, to conclude here, we see, even in Romans, in Romans chapter 9 specifically, the topic of salvation of sinners by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to God's sovereign grace in election, is to move the Christian's heart to bewilderment and awe that God has chosen to save us in Christ despite what our sins deserved. What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we acknowledge that you are sovereign and we are not. We give you praise for being our gracious, merciful King who withholds judgment from your people. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is such great evidence of your steadfast love such great evidence that you are God with us. Lord, we ask that your word truly 
would help us live underneath your sovereign rule. And Lord, we pray that in this conversation, in this section of Scripture, in, these, in this sermon series even, in Romans chapter 9, where your sovereignty is so clearly presented, Lord, we pray that we would never lose sight that you are, in fact, a God who loves us. Father, we pray that our hearts would rejoice just like Paul's did. We know that you are a God who loves us, which is why Paul wanted to go out and share the gospel with everybody, that salvation could be had, that the righteousness of God is made available in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that we would do the same thing. But, Lord, when we face some of these difficult and challenging passages, Lord, we pray that you would help us learn. We pray that you would give us teachable hearts to your word and that we would always want your word to sit over us Help us watch our hearts where there might be any sort of bitterness, any sort of pride. We pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would cultivate humility, knowing that we are saved by your sovereign grace in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.